Hey there, and welcome to the Craftish Podcast, episode 37. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is sponsored by Production 4, an Austin-based production company that produces TV commercials, docudramas, and philanthropic profiles worldwide. The Production 4 crew and I have teamed up to produce the Kickstarter campaign for The Knit Show with Vicki Howell, which will be the first studio-quality, community-funded, internationally accessible how-to knitting episodic series. The campaign launched on March 20th and runs through April 19th. If you think you're interested in being a part of a new wave of craft-based programming, please go check out our info video, the story, and see where we're at in reaching our goal. To do that, you just need to head on over to kickstarter.com and search for The Knit Show. This week, I spoke with textile designer, artist, and creative entrepreneur, Anna Maria Horner. I've been admiring her and her work for years from afar, so it's an absolute pleasure to finally meet her. We talked about her multifaceted career, which includes design, publishing, teaching, licensing, and running her own Nashville shop, Craft South. We also talked about what she's learned from her career journey so far and how she balances it all with her role as a wife and the mother of seven children. Anna Maria seems to be one of those people who it's easy to become fast friends with. She's bright, open, and unafraid to speak candidly. Conversation is easy with her, as you'll see, because we didn't quite get to a proper hello before our chat was already well on its way. Let's meet her now. You know, I think um, I, I had this conversation actually with a, I had it with a CEO just recently about, I think some, you know, and this is an interesting perspective with you because you are an actual fine artist, but I think a lot of um, people that tend to be way further over on the artist spectrum versus the entrepreneurial yeah. spectrum have, yeah. a, a, have a really hard time lassoing then the details Agreed. that harness their own success. But you can, you can hire people for that. <laughs> it, unless you can't you get, get, get your shit together enough to be able to harness it together to get the funding to pay people to hire. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it can oh. end up being like this, like snowball effect. I know. It's so true. It's so true. And, um, yeah, it is a left brain, right brain thing. But I think that in the, in the kind of world that you and I are in, most of us kind of have both because like, you know, if you have the, I mean, you, I'm sure if you've taught classes or work with people, you know, immediately how strong they are left or right, you know, by just to them about a project or whatever. And it's the same in like the sewing and quilting world, like, I definitely am. I, I imagine I'd walk right down the middle of both sides, you know, but there are some people that are really strong on that one side. But I think that, I think a lot of us in the knitting, crafting, like there's math, there's technicality, like it's a combination, you know, for the most part, but yeah, I feel like, I feel like we've already started and I should, and we should, and we should, you know what? It doesn't have to be the same as everyone. Hey, right. Welcome to craftish. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> um, no, I want to talk. I, I mean, this obviously we were we weren't even ready to go, but I, I think it's I think it's a good topic to talk about um, how interesting it is and how easily you can tell how somebody's creative brain expresses themselves. I used to mm. on a show I used to host. I used to almost use it as like I, I like look at it like it was a psychological experiment because yeah. if a guest came on and showed you know maybe some really intricate fair aisle with you know steaking and you know whatever or really intricate lace work, they tended to be way more analytical and and Usually, but not always less comfortable with sort of the kind of improv banter that can make a talk show. And then conversely, if somebody came in and showed, you know, how to improvise knitting, do improvisational crochet or whatever, sometimes getting them to like, and come back and focus. It was was so interesting. And I kind of loved that, like, I only had one or two exceptions and, you know, eight seasons seasons of this particular show where there was really an exception where if if somebody was like navigated towards these or gravitated towards these types of projects their brains seemed to work a certain way versus the other yeah 
No, I, I, I completely agree. And I think in my sort of on my side of craft land, you know, on the sewing and quilting and patchwork spectrum, um, personally, as a creator and teacher, you know, I sort of like to trap both of those aspects of the brain down. You know, I think that I kind of walk a line between pretty technical and pretty creative. Um, but depending on what I'm approaching, I even frustrate myself with how much more I might be embracing one or the other. And, um, but also like to welcome the opportunities to kind of change that up. For instance, um, as an example, one of the most popular classes I've taught is, um, surrounding this project that created called mod corsage, where it was just, uh, patchwork style bouquet building. So it's patchwork and essentially a quilt, right? That built. That's a great name for that, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. That built an image of a bouquet. And, um, it was first inspired by a very traditional, really few hundred years old technique, um, called broidery purse, which was meant to, um, imitate Persian embroidery, which is what embroidery purse means in French. And because Persian embroidery was expensive, um, European women would rather cut up floral pieces of chintz cotton and hand stitch it back together, kind of build these sort of not necessarily sculptural, but definitely had some relief aspects to it because of the process of hand applique. But they built, they built these beautiful hand-stitched bouquets that were meant to look like embroideries. And I was so inspired by the beauty of that, but thought, oh, I'll do it in a more modern way, you know, where it's a lot more straight line patchwork and not all hand applique. So my first take on doing it was, you know, this 18 inch block that I drew on graph paper to plan all afternoon long, all the way down to, you know, one inch, squares and then made myself a cut list. And then, you know, the background was going to be pale. The leaves and stems were going to be greens and tonals and the floral blocks were going to be from floral fabrics, you know, and while that was all fine and I liked what I ended up with, I'm quicker to do something in a more, on the more analytical side. Because yeah. It almost sounds like you are, you're, you come at it almost with like the perspective of an architect. Yes, absolutely. And I have that brain, but I think that's a lot, what a lot of sewing is. That's how I was self-taught to sew when I stopped trying to read instructions as a nine-year-old, because I didn't understand the terminology. I started just looking at the pieces and understanding the structure and sort of, I mean, that's what addresses. It's an architectural form for a body, you know, but anyway, so that's how my mind works. But then I kind of hated the process of building this block. I loved what I finally ended up with, but I didn't like that I um, kind of caged myself into following this one format. So it wasn't until about three quarters of the way through building this probably smallest piece of patchwork I've ever made, because I usually make full scale, you know, bed size patchwork. A couple of days into it and about three quarters of the way into it, I was like, the plans, you know, (laughs) let me just look at what's on the wall and get back to that, you know, fine art side of my brain that I was trained to just use my eyes and my intuition and and improvise the rest of the process. And so do you have a trigger uh, to flip that switch? I mean, because it's a different uh, it's a different energy, right? Frustration. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably frustration with not enjoying it, you know, because the for the, I mean, I, and I kind of say this too about developing collections of art for fabrics. Like it has to get to an ugly place. Sometimes that means it, it looks ugly to me. Um, this particular like block and process was not ugly, but I was not enjoying it. You know, I felt I got really wrapped up in the idea of how I was going to teach someone to do this. And that's that other bit, which I'm sure you're familiar with when you're developing a project, because so much of what we do is education based. You need to be able to pass it on and share it with someone. So sometimes you. That sucks a lot of the creativity out of it. It can, it absolutely can. And then, you know, and it sometimes will alter what the thing is. It will simplify it. I don't want to say water it down because that makes it seem less important or good. And it's not, but it's a different thing. Um, I think that if I were making work just to suit my own sort of aesthetic aspirations, it'd probably be more complicated and more different and more improvisational. And I think that that might be part of what has me going after things in a 
one through 20 step-by-step process instead of letting it kind of breathe and respond aesthetically. But what's been interesting is I've taught that class so much more than any of the others from here to Australia and back. And I love it because the results are so different. And I think what helps me be a good teacher in that class is sharing that struggle, sharing yeah, that yeah. fight um, with my students between my left and right brain and going ahead and acknowledging that up front with them, you know, that you will, you may, depending on how you work, have a tendency to just, you know, rules be damned, I'm just going to go for it or the exact opposite and just kind of encourage everyone to give both, you know, try both on a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And I think, it, uh, I mean, I think that you're giving them a great gift, um, you know, just from, you know, teacher to teacher experience. I, I'm sure that you, like I have had so many students that come into a class thinking, and not even just thinking, saying out loud, I'm not creative. I, mm-hmm. I, ju- I just came here because, you know, somebody told me to, or I just, or, right. I don't, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't normally, or I can't choose color. Um, and a lot of that is because of the way that they've, you know, they or we've been conditioned, you know, throughout our lives that, you know, just because we weren't great illustrators meant that we weren't creative at all or whatever it is, or maybe, you know, right. you had an adult tell you or whatever. Um, and so you can almost see it, like as soon as you give them the permission to, you know, make a quote unquote mistake or yeah, just, just see what about. happens <laughs> or just like take a breath because it's only fabric or yarn or whatever, yeah. you can yeah. almost see the like a postural change. Like you've given, yeah, you've given them permission. Yeah. And they just relax a little bit. And yeah, I completely agree with that. And, um, it's also why I I find it so much more enjoyable for myself and the students. If it's a two day class to do something like this, you know, instead of one, because on that second day, it's just kind of like you hit a stride and you Mm. start building, you start kind of embracing the more improvisational aspects of this particular project or not. But, um, so you break your classes down basically the you know, for both sides of your brain, like day one is your yeah, more analytical side. To. Yeah. I try to, you know, it's a materials gathering process and, um, and even within a really structured quilt that is nothing but repeating a block, there's still so much opportunity to respond to a mid progress work, you know, that I think a lot of us, um, tend to forget because that repetitive sort of block style that you like, okay, I've chosen these 12 fabrics and I'm going to do it over and over and over again. I'm going to slap them up on the wall and then arrange. Like, I think that so many of us get about halfway through and, and even though something might be nagging us visually, we're so prone. Maybe it's a female thing to just finish, (laughs) you know, without allowing yourself the space to be like, you know what? I think this whole group of nine blocks in the center should be a completely different palette. And I think that I should arrange the whole, you know, um, I think we have a tendency to deny ourselves process, um, and err on the side of completion or checking it off or, you know, maybe that speaks to vulnerability, second guessing yourself. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But, um, you were asking before about like, what is that switch that makes me realize that I need to embrace improv or not. And, um, I did say frustration, but to kind of expand upon that, I I think that, you know, I can stop. It's hard for me to stop a process when I'm frustrated. It's usually the best thing to do. And I find that walking away, spending some time, elsewhere doing something else creative or not or something that day like dishes or laundry mm. for a run you know um I will almost always if I've been out of the studio at least a few hours and not sure quite what's bugging me about something whether it's a fabric collection or a patchwork that I'm working on I'll always see it immediately when I walk back through the door <laughs> have you <laughs> been doing this long enough to to know <sighs> because you know given the breadth of your career and the size of your family, which we'll talk about in a bit. I imagine that not only the left brain, right brain thing, but also the like time deadline versus like letting the process happen thing has got to constantly be kind of, you know, at odds with each other. So have you come to a point where you 
just know that ultimately it's probably going to take the same time and you can either fret for three hours and be at the same place or come back to it. Yeah. I've had, I mean, it has been a long haul to give myself a break, you know, to, and I learned, um, few years ago, I didn't learn it, but I definitely heard it and aspired to it from my friend, Natalie Channon, that has the um, company, Alabama Channon. I interviewed her for this podcast. Yeah, she's lovely. Good, yeah, sure. she's lovely. So fantastic. Um, I, we've had some collaborations over the years and of course we are pretty geographically close to one another and I've had a friendship for several years and, um, in the midst of one of our collaborations, I can't remember I think it was, I was doing a book review for her newest book and it was right as I was opening my shop in uh, Nashville a couple of years ago. And, um, I was apologizing, you know, profusely for the tardiness of submitting my write up. And I said, I'm so sorry that this is late. You know, this is just an email. And she just replied, although I could hear her voice in my head when she said it, she said, there's no late in our world. <sighs> and I just thought, oh, girl, like I just like wanted to take a nap as soon as I heard it. You uh, know? And I just felt such, again, like permission to be human yeah. and to just like chill. And, and then I, I thought so much about that. Just that one thing that she said, and I don't think she had any idea. And Natalie, if you're listening, thank you. I I don't think she had any idea um, what it did for me and how I continue to think about that in relationship to the kind of company that she runs. And I have such a respect for that. And I personally have tried to include that in a, in in my mind and in terms of when I think of something, because Again, it's that sort of entrepreneurial and creative combination that is wonderful and I feel so fortunate for, but I am constantly putting a fire under my own ass. You know? yeah. <laughs> Just, um, well, I think that you being open, but you've got to give yourself a break. Like, yeah. so what if this quilt kit isn't available for two months after you thought it would be like, it's fabric. No one's going to die, you know? <laughs> There's a challenge with that. Well, first of all, I think that you get that reaction from people when you are in earnest, like working hard, you know, I think like just slacking off and flaking is one thing, but when you are like, absolute, if you're communicating, especially with women, like as long as you're communicating, like like the amount of, I tell my teenage sons this, like, let me, if I can give you one lesson, like send that text, make that call two words, check in, let them know that you know, or that you're thinking. Acknowledge. And acknowledge. it doesn't, yeah, acknowledge. It doesn't matter if yes. it's your wife, your boss, your teacher, yes. it will save you yes. a world of hurt. And I really, th- I found that, and I'm. Sh- it's probably in all businesses, but I think since we have such a female driven business and we all feel behind yeah. all the time, that I think that it's really important to say that, yeah. you know, yeah, there are some hard and fast deadlines, but communication is the key. And yes. when you are upfront about it, things like, you know, Natalie giving you this wonderful, you know, one-off sentence that really resonated with you are going to happen. Yeah. I will also say this though, like she has a slow, uh, her whole gig is slow sewing and slow fashion. So it's she true. has, she has much more license to Yes, to just chill, and she's created that for herself, and that's awesome for her. It is. No one's ever going to be. No one's ever probably going to hear from me like, "Oh, just please take as much time as you need." That would be like the last thing that you'd ever hear out of my mouth. (laughs) Like I said, aspirations, you know. But um, it's just a balance, you know. You don't want to kill yourself, and um, I, I think that the pace of our world, because of how so many of us work remotely and, you know, and technology boom of 10 or 15 years ago, like an Amazon shipping something in five seconds, you know, I just think that it's sort of just like this little virus that has spread mm-hmm. to the rest of us that we feel we have to perform quickly. And that's kind of not how craft goes <laughs> or not craft that I want to take part in. That's such know? a good point too, because I remember, um, so years ago, my first handmade business, quote unquote business, it was not much of one, was um, was called Mamarama. And it was like hip handmade gear for babies and their moms or something similar to that. And it was back in the day when they're, you know, people had to write checks and send it to a P.O. box to order, right. you know, there, like there was a website, but not that long ago. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, but it was, you know, let's say 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. It was, um, 
And I, you know, on the website, it would say, please allow six to eight weeks for shipping because I would get the order and then I would make that, you, you know, yeah, that hooded towel, retro inspired yeah. hooded towel right then. And that was totally acceptable. Now there's no way that would fly. And yeah. so the, the stress that that puts out there is really easy to succumb to. Yeah. And I also, you know, as I was sort of absorbing how the craft and sewing industry sort of, um, markets its product, I was sort of astounded, you know, I first like came to the quilting industry on a completely, from a completely naive point of view, not naive in terms of knowing how to sew, but in terms or naive about like what a quilt was or how it was created, but in terms of like how the industry surrounded the quilt worked. Right. And I thought of quilts as this long flow process, right. Just inherent in its design and, um, qualities. And I was kind of astounded by how much marketing used phrasings like, the two hour patchwork, the one hour skirt, the 30 minute pillow, you know, how mm-hmm. everything seemed to be based, you know, just like on the cover of glamour, there ha- you have to have the word sex and you have to have a number there for someone to pick it up. <laughs> like you have to have 742 tips on eyelashes, mm-hmm. you know, it's like these buzzwords of anything that took someone less than a day for some reason was thought of as appealing. Well, I think, and I, you know, look, I'm, I am like, it has a lot to do with schlepping product. uh, Well, yeah, uh, maybe (laughs) totally for, (laughs) but, but my, my whole gig, cause I'm, I'm I'm definitely, um, someone that, that promotes things that way or similar that way. It, it doesn't for me have to do with pushing product. I, for me, it has to do probably with my own projection of always being like slammed Busy and enough. wanting people to be able to fit creativity life, but without, and this goes back to just something we carry as women, without feeling lesser than because there's another thing that we didn't finish at right. the end of the day. Right. So for me, you it's know, like simple and quick means you're going to, it's a little yeah. piece of success for you. Right. Um, so, I mean, I can definitely see both sides. It's it's like with anything, it's it's finding balance. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. I'm glad you said that because um, I think that I also have just always been a person, you know, from doing crafts as a very young girl to now, I've always been a person that's, I've never really been bothered by being surrounded by mid-progress work. Like I've never felt, and maybe that's because I do do this for a living and not as just this one side thing that gives me joy, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I've never been, I've never felt like lesser, as you said, if I don't have something finished in a certain amount of time, you know, the fact that it's, so maybe that's me sort of just enjoying engagement in the process and less, you know, about the final result, I suppose. But I imagine, you know, as you said, if you, if you're on the sort of beginning end and you want to see some success is often what propels you forward, you know, yeah. so if you find those successes in smaller doses, you're more likely perhaps to tread that path. So and it's I not think... all bad, you know, but I just always thought it was so interesting. Like, I don't want a skirt that I only made in an hour, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's so but... interesting. I think, so I think for, well, I think in a lot of ways in my industry, I'm more of a recruiter than anything else. If I'm being mm-hmm. honest, I mean, I'm really about yeah, sort of cult- probably as high recruit numbers. Um, And not, and not in a, I mean, I'm not hired by people to recruit people to craft. I just, I'm really am like my focus is community, you know, cultivating that community. And because so many people say to me, you know, out in the world, I don't have time for another hobby or I can't possibly, or I'm not creative or I'm, you know, all of these things. Right. If I can be a part of making that accessible and then if they really want to delve in further, then they can go on to the things that aren't going to be able to be made in a weekend. Right. That's awesome. And And on the other spectrum, if they only, you know, forever make garter stitch scarves, but they're doing something that has a meditative value to them or makes them feel um, like they're putting something positive out in the world. That also really rocks. And I'm cool with that, you know? Yeah, definitely. We have um, a lot of customers in our shop across South here in Nashville, my brick and mortar that um, they've done just that since the beginning, you know, like, cause we have a, a yarn section and do knitting classes and stuff. And we have some women that have done our, um, 
knitting classes a, a year or two ago and still are just, you know, coming and buy another couple skeins for another garter stitch scarf, you know, and it just makes them so happy. And it makes me, it doesn't have to progress beyond that level to provide some joy, you know? Yeah. It's just sort of, everybody has a different bar. I think about what that, um, satisfaction process intersection is, you know, so let's talk about the arc of, you just mentioned craft South, your brick and mortar shop, which started as it, well, you had a shop at the very beginning of your career with your mom, right. Called uh, handmaiden. That's right. Yep. And then there's a huge trajectory in between, yeah. but let's just link those two. Let's talk about yeah. the bookends of your brick and mortar and how yeah. that arc happened for you. Would love to. So, um, essentially, you know, I always had sewn growing up. And when I was in college, I was just hand making some dresses for a local shop. Um, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I, and I was attending the university of Tennessee, getting my fine art degree. And, um, so I just earned extra money. I was making these dresses and, uh, we, had my oldest daughter, Juliana, really young when we were in school and then got married soon after that. And, um, my husband was, um, a little behind me in finishing up his college career. So I wasn't going off anywhere yet. And the dress sales were going really well. Um, so just to this one shop. So instead of wholesaling, I decided to open a brick and mortar together with my mom, right. As she was, um, retiring from her nursing career. So that shop basically was, um, you know, I consider it kind of like my business degree, I guess, in a Mm -hmm. sense, or product development degree. Um, because it was a really like hands-on opportunity to sketch an idea, source the materials, cost out the materials, create it and sell it within a matter of 24 hours, you know? Um, so, cause I would design, I designed all the clothing and then my mom and I made it all in the storefront. Oh wow! Um, yeah. But we also had other product in the shop as well. Um, it was sort of like, you know, it wasn't like other shops. We had uh, hand-painted furniture. We had jewelry, we had accessories, we had home goods, um, clothing. And I also bought a few other lines that I really admired, like Betsy Johnson and a few Calvin Klein things. And at a, you know, at its peak of product, we probably also represented the handmade work of about 30 local designers, whether it was furniture or jewelry, or, I mean, when I look back on it and this is completely flattering myself, like when I look back on it, like the product variety that we had in the shop was akin to something like anthropology, but the handmade, um, aspect was akin to Etsy, you know? So, and how did that, I mean, how does this happen? How does this happen? How does this happen? Um, sorry, our connection's kind of weird, so I keep interrupting you. But um, but so, how old are you at this point? I'm 23 when I opened the shop. You're and 23. At, at time, you have a baby. I have a baby. She's three. You've managed um, to not only have a baby and and finish your college degree, which already you've broken a stereotype, and get married. Baby, high throttle. <laughs> uh, but you got it together to get seed money and start a business. Have you, were you always like, even as a child, did you go into things? So like balls to the wall, like, were you always so famous? Yeah. Um, definitely a risk taker by personality trait. Um, don't do anything halfway, you know? Um, so yeah, just not afraid, I guess. I mean, I certainly had the security and help of my family. I mean, my seed money was 5,000 bucks from my dad, you know, but when I look back, I'm like, that was nothing, (laughs) you know, it wasn't much. Um, because we were hand making the product, our costs were pretty low in terms of production, but again, business degree, you know, just learning the cost of business was a huge eye opener. Um, but, um, yeah, so I was doing a little bit of all that, you know, I think that having Juliana really young, I just learned the moment I was an adult to also be a parent. So I was, had already been doing that for a few years, you know, um, but yeah, so we, 
you know, we had, like I said, you know, it had this kind of combination that I like to think of as an anthropology and a, and a handmade aspect like Etsy, but it was all like, I mean, when I look back and think about how different it was, I mean, most people were buying khaki at the gap at that time in the early nineties, right. <laughs> you know, so this, and then even the, so the style of the product that we were putting out was definitely on the fringe, you know, of design and fashion. It wasn't anything like extreme, but it was certainly more bohemian and colorful and not really different from the look of most of what I do now. But, um, obviously we didn't do a lot of intensive handmade details on the dresses. A lot of them were pretty fast. sews, just cause they had to be, but, um, yeah, so that was that business and it was exciting and fun. We made absolutely no money and, um, but that, while it felt important then, looking back now, that was the least important aspect of that experience was whether or not I made money. Yeah, um, I mean, that laid the foundation for mm, the rest yeah. of your career, it seems it like. It did. And it, yeah, I was bit by the bag of product. You know, I think when I was in school, um, I mean, I have a painting, a fine art degree in painting and drawing. And so I sort of envisioned myself as just painting and drawing and having gallery shows periodically. And um, the shop and the product development and getting to hand over, you know, a dress that I just finished 30 minutes ago to an excited, you know, 25 year old that loved it. <laughs> um, just that like connection with a person who wanted to spend their money on it immediately was um, contagious. You know, I love product development because of how there's always something new. Um, but to this day, that is still the stress of my business is that there's always something new. There's always the next thing. And the minute you've wrapped up, you're starting again and sort of what I love and sort of what exhausts me about all of it. But, um, so I did the clothing line, for five years, but only in a retail space for the first three. Um, when my fam, as my family grew and we decided to make the move to Nashville, Tennessee for my husband's work, um, I wrapped it back up into a wholesale business for a few more years. And then family grew again. You know, I can count back all my decision processes, um, up against pregnancies and babies, you know, but that's also what's been kind of great. I mean, I don't regret that or feel, like, I don't feel like it was a concession ever to change how I was doing something because I had a newborn. Like I felt like empowered by the fact that I could change it, you know, to suit myself and my family. Um, do you think that that was because something struck me about, um, that you wrote in, um, in an article that your mom really was a great working mom and you don't really hear you don't really hear women talk about their moms in that way. That like, you hear a great mom or my mom was home mm-hmm. with me or my mom worked. But but examples of moms who worked and also worked well as a mom. Do you think that that's sort of Oh, without doubt. And the other thing is my mom also put herself back to school in the midst of working and caring for the three of us to I mean she already had a nursing degree but she went back and got a master's so that she could be a OBGYN nurse practitioner as well, just because she wanted to. So that's, that's when I learned how to do laundry, (laughs) you know? So my mom was delegating, (laughs) like she would probably like God rest her soul. She would never admit to training me on being a good business person and manager, but my mom delegated us, you know, she's like, all right, I'm going to school. Here's how you do your wash. (laughs) You know, I had that same mom experience by the way. Yeah. And like, what a gift to give your kids, you know, to empower them. I can remember a friend of mine calling me in our early twenties that I'd had since childhood. And, um, after she'd been married for a couple of weeks and, um, she called and asked, how often do you change the sheets on your bed? <laughs> I mean, it's a fair question. Fair question. I was like, hopefully a lot since you're newlywed. <laughs> but, and if you have to ask me now, I hope everything's okay. You're like, before I answer that, have you been married one year or 10 years? Yeah, right. But like, but just like, you know, let's say the rest of the house, right? The guest room, for instance, like, or the, your kids, yeah. like, you know, just, I remember thinking like, did you never, she'd never done laundry. 
like never yeah it's like god that is so sad <laughs> like it's so sad you don't know how to do that you know <laughs> As a total side note, I remember, this is so random, but I remember watching Oprah one, you know, some episode and who knows, it was, she was talking about guests and things that you should do with guests. Like you should never have bar soap when guests are over because weird hairs can stick to it or whatever. Yeah, no one wants to reuse that. Shower yeah. gel. Like stuff. a bar of soap in an Airbnb. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> um, but she was also talking about like how often she likes to have your, her sheets changed or whatever. And she was like, she said something like, she was talking to another ex- expert or an expert about just, I guess, home stuff. And yeah. somebody said, how, how, how often, you know, how often do you change your sheets? And she kind of spoke up. She's like, oh, I like every 48 hours. I like it to be crisp. And he just looked at her and he, he said, I knew that, I knew that was going to be the case with Oprah. She just seems like a clean sheet kind of girl. I mean, who wouldn't want, who wouldn't want, like, I mean, you, know, you can like, I get them changed every day, nice, cool, whatever, you know, but the, mm-hmm. the guest and you know, this would be a better story if I remembered who the guest was, but I remember the gentleman looking at her and just like saying, that's not realistic for most people. And then going back, uh, like going back to the person's question. And I was just like, that is hilarious. And, and wow. Yeah. So, Um, but, but yeah, so life skills. So so I wonder, so so I had, you know, a similar experience in the, in the way that, you know, I I also, you know, had a working mom and she went back and got her master's when she was in her forties. Hers was for special education. She's an educator and, you know, we had to we always had to do stuff. We had to do our own stuff, you know? And um, although it stunk in a lot of ways when I was at that I age, like, Are you I, <laughs> I, I credit a lot of what I've been able to do career wise, you know, in the most random career that I've created um, from how I had to hustle as a kid, like how I had yeah. to just get stuff done and make things happen and, you know, yeah. and that kind of thing. And, and so conversely, like, from mama to mama, we've spoken from teacher to teacher, from mama to mama, do you, do you have your children do as much as you did a and B, if not, do you ever worry that because they have more or less that they will then be more or less successful at being independent humans? Yeah. You know, I feel like I've lived five parenting lifetimes already because a, we've been doing it a long time. (laughs) My oldest daughter is uh, 25 and I also have a three-year-old. So all those fluctuations of our kind of family makeup at different points in time over the past 25 years, you know, every handful of years, the whole sort of environment of what's possible kind of changes, you know, Uh, where we are now And the choices I make for my family and what's expected of them now are pretty different than what I expected of my one daughter, right? Um, I've always felt like, because she was the only one for six years, you know, our first, and then we had kind of four in a row every other year for like nine years, you know, and then um, another two after that. And um, so here's all, I will say this, I need help. Yeah. <laughs> in the house, right? Like I need help. My husband, um, we, we each do our things, you know, like he does his thing. I do my thing. We kind of expect that of each other in terms of how we contribute to just the care and keeping of our home. Um, is it always balanced? No. <laughs> you know, is mm-hmm. it, does it always work? Like, without emotion? No, but, um, I definitely want my, I have one thing that's never changed is I want my kids to contribute. I have hired help before. Like, I mean, if anyone could use help cleaning their house, it's me certainly. Um, because I've always been the kind of person, like I'm not going to stop during the week and pick stuff up to have it at some step, you know, some point of Tuesday afternoon perfection. Like it's just not worth it to me because, you know, you blink and there it is again. So I've always, for years, it was just like pulling teeth out of their heads every Saturday morning. We just suffered through it together. And there have been a couple patches of hiring someone to help here and there. Um, I get asked a lot about, you know, oh, you must have a nanny. I would all, I've always been more likely to hire some, to help someone to help with housework than in the care of my kids. Um, because if I'm going to be busy with one of those two things, I prefer to be busy with the care of my kids, you know, but now 
they're a lot older. So I've got five of my kids are 13 years or older, right? So mm-hmm. it's very different. I mean, they all have their own lives. Um, they're here less. Uh, so the, there's less mess. It's really just the little two that are running around making the mess now, you know. But I always did kind of have a problem with the idea of my kids walking out of the house to school, leaving it in a mess, coming home, and it's perfect, and they had nothing to do with it. <laughs> like, yeah, right? Me, right? <laughs> you know, just because that, I just, again, back to that, I don't think you're doing a kid any favor by having all this done for them, you know. So they've all taken part in various stages, and they all still are expected to. But I do, for the past six months or so, I've had some help every couple of weeks um, with you know, getting housework done. But a lot of it has to do with, you know, three of my kids that live it. My oldest doesn't live here anymore. Three of my kids have jobs, right? So they're busy. Another one teenager that doesn't have a job, she's doing soccer every day, you know, and then there's the little two. So it's sort of like, I have expectations, but I also want them to be responsible and contributing to what each of them is interested in, you know, even outside of the home. So I think that has a lot to do with, kind of my decision to get some help. That was a very long answer to, do you hire anyone to help you? (laughs) I didn't ask you if you hired anyone to help you. (laughs) You didn't even ask me a question, did you? I just started talking. No, (laughs) no. and it wasn't too long of an answer. It just wasn't the answer to the question you thought you were answering. (laughs) We were talking about, um, if you, you know, we were talking about the kids' contributions. Yeah, yeah, our work ethic versus. Um, You mentioned that handmaiden was your business school do you ever think of juliana as being your kind of motherhood template yes god bless her (laughs) (laughs) all first kids are total practice i mean we know this we don't say it but we're practicing on them you know it's just how it is and again like really different time in our lives i mean juliana has such a respect for the dollar, you know, that my little ones never will simply because, you know, when I was going through art school and waiting tables and trying to make dresses and taking care of her and, you know, it was a struggle financially. And my parents were certainly available to me to help, but I always wanted to ask for the minimum from them just because I wanted to do it myself, you know? Um, so, I mean, I can remember, making the very conscious effort in my painting materials is switching to acrylic paints simply because it was less expensive, Yeah, you know, um, for my materials in school and (laughs) making that decision when we were out of milk, you know, and only so much money in the bank to do the grocery shopping and my art supplies for the month. So, um, it's not the brilliance of waiting tables though, is picking up a shift. It is the brilliance of the Well, I mean, I talk about the, I, I mean, you know, it's a common theme sort of on this podcast to talk about the randomness that, um, everyone you know, should have to wait tables. That, yeah. <laughs> of like people's career paths and, and yours mm-hmm. has been a little bit more straightforward, but I, I, I think waiting tables gave me a lot of lessons that I still use yes. today. I mean, yes. I learned that if you sort of like got on a lower level, like almost eye to eye or put yeah. your hand on their shoulder, yeah. there was a connection and then you would get a better tip. And now yeah. I use that just in speaking, like just like yeah. you know, staring people in the eye, putting your hand on their shoulder, you know, letting them know. There are little things like that. But also yeah. I always customer say- Customer service lessons, oh my goodness. Customer like service, waiting yeah. Waiting tables is, yeah, where I learned to kill things with kindness, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And also the picking up another shift. I still, as a, you know, entrepreneur, I'm like, well, if this doesn't work out, (laughs) well, not even like literally, but like, well, I could just write another book or I'll just throw another, you know, what it's like, I always say, I'll just pick up a shift. But what I mean is, is I'll, you know, pitch another idea or I'll develop another this or whatever. And I really think that I got that, like that ingrained in me because that's what I had to do when I was a teenager and we didn't have any money. Yeah. And how great is that, 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 like remembering that that's available to you, I'm just going to work a little harder. I'm going to put in one more effort, you know, like while ex- that's exhausting because <laughs> it's always there and comes available here and there. I don't care how far along you are. 
I don't know, maybe I'm not living the way the rest of the entrepreneurial world is, but I don't care how far along I come or what the perception of my business and life is. There are moments whether they involve kind of bigger chunks of investment and finances, like the chunks are all much bigger than they were 15 years ago, but it's certainly the same thing. It's like, ah, wow. Looks a little dry in the bank account, I guess. Um, flash sale, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not embarrassed to admit that like that's the nature of a business and of being a risk taker, you know? Um, but it's working. So I'm glad for it. <laughs> you know. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about sort of the scale of your entrepreneurialism. So you have several, oh, yeah. several, yeah. several facets. Well, we can connect. Yes. I want to talk about the business as part yeah. of it, but licensing, design, mm. book author, mm. brick and mortar shop, yeah. virtual instructor, physical mm. instructor, and garment piecer. Am I forgetting anything? Um, no, I mean, yes. And the, the authorship would extend to my ongoing library of sewing patterns, right? Not just books. No, yeah. Or design. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Pub- publishing. Hey, if I scream here in a second, it's because two wasps have just joined me through an open window. Okay. So, I'm here okay. with you. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so did you add how did did you add all of these elements along the way? Did, did you already always know that you would have to have sort of multiple streams of income to make your overall business work? Does it speak more to what we were talking about earlier, the two sides of your brain needing constant stimulation? Talk a little bit about your your overall business. Yeah, I think it's all about that. I mean, I think that um so, you know, my first entry into where I am now and which really kind of picks up of where I stopped doing handmade and was I started doing product design after that and enter licensing, right? So mm-hmm. I was designing artwork that would get um, utilized in the manufacture of all different kinds of products, whether it was, you know, paper party wear or stationery and then eventually fabric, which then eventually led to where I am now. So um, when I got asked to design fabric, I was working with, you know, a few dozen companies on all sorts of products. But once I started doing fabric, I became less interested in everything that wasn't supportive and within the sewing and craft industry because I found it was just one that I loved more than one more than like the interior design or homewares industry. Right. So I found a real sense of community there. And I think that, um, hopefully to answer your question in terms of those different revenue streams, again, the handcraft community is based on education. Um, it's based on learning how to do something. And, um, so if you're going to, yes, could I have, simply contributed artwork to the manufacture of fabric and be done. Absolutely. A lot of people do. Um, but once I decided that I wanted to move my focus there and I do have such a history there that I really wasn't utilizing and just designing art, you know, I do have such a history with doing handcraft and sewing, um, And apparently a desire to teach as well and to connect with people. Um, So it was sort of a natural progression, I think, to sort of add these things on. I mean, it kind of went like this, you know, so I designed the fabric. Well, and then I'm going to design projects to show it. Well, and then I'm going to blog about it. And then I get asked about how did I make that? And then tutorials appear. And then from the tutorials, book offers appear. And then from the book offers, the video teaching offers appear. You know, so it was, I will say that a common theme and how I've approached adding any of those facets to my business is just trying to be intuitive. And again, trying to manage and make those decisions based not only on the structure of income and schedule, but on where I am in my life. And, you know, are my kids at an age where I could travel and teach? Are they um, really needing me home more? So I'm going to do these creative bug videos where they travel to me and we do them out of my studio so I can take a break and go nurse the baby. You know, so a lot of things have contributed to my decision processes along the way. But I think that there was kind of a line in the sand when I developed Craft South, which is um, my shop. And it first started as, and I'll say too, that, you know, I also, then one thing I left out is I started becoming a retailer of all my goods that I was developing. Right. So that was another stream. Um, 
so you had the fabrics and the books and the patterns and spokespersonship with Janome, which involved doing video work and, and Janome is a sewing machine company. Um, and so all those things just tend to feed one another really, really well. Um, doing craft South was different in that I had the desire to develop something that was outside of my own personal brand. Was it leveraged off of the success I've enjoyed on my personal brand? Absolutely. But I wanted it to have a universal feel and aspect that lived outside me and had the potential to grow bigger than, you know, I ever could. Um, doesn't mean that I want to franchise it or have it be huge, but I did want it to, I mean, I'll be honest. I, you know, as a designer who has a specific aesthetic, things change in the industry in terms of taste and trend. And, you know, if all of a sudden everybody only wants solid pale fabrics, I'm probably not going to have a big year. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and let's I, be honest, there's a lot of solid pale going on right now. There are a lot of solid pails, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but I've, been really happy that I've never really after, you know, a handful of years, like I've been able to change what I offer on fabrics just enough that I have not dropped at all, you know? And so I've been really happy that I desire trends and change just as much too. So like things continue to go well for me in fabric, they continue to go really well, which I'm so pleased about. But with it, I think with an an eye towards the future and what is it that I'm building? Like building something surrounding my name is important and great. Not really necessarily something I can easily hand to say one of my kids one day, right? The artwork surrounding my name. Sure. Um, so I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, I could c- kind of create this thing that you could give to one of your kids, or guess what? You could sell. I mean, so in some senses it was a business decision, um, to be kind of building something that had a life of its own that could take a lot of different avenues and be picked up by another individual, whether it was one of my kids or not. Uh, but also it was a place like, you know, I can sell whatever is most popular there, whether it's me or not, you know, and I can contribute and, foster the love, contribute to and foster the love of handcraft beyond what is capable, what I'm capable of online. And while that's expansive because of, you know, the worldwide quality of the internet, I just sort of got to where it was sure would be nice to just drive over to this place and see with my own eyes, what people are making instead of always being on my computer, (laughs) you know, I just wanted to be more, sort of genuinely and physically immersed in the process of making and teaching and learning and enjoying craft. So, um, do you find, have you found it any more difficult now in the days of Pinterest and Instagram than it was say, you know, five, seven years ago, pre those social media avenues to to not be swayed by all of the aesthetic that is not yours, but still pretty and, and very, you know, popular, or are you, are you so ingrained and like solid and in your own aesthetic that that's not difficult? As far as like my process of design? Now, I mean, if you're going through all of these gorgeous galleries and you're seeing all these solid pails and the, like the gallery looks mm. beautiful mm. and whatever, is it harder now to not be swayed than it would have been before yeah, we were being like inundated more influenced because of the pervasiveness yeah. and how easy to see yeah. everything. I have to admit, Vicki, I don't look at Pinterest. <laughs> I don't look at Pinterest. I don't, uh, I can't remember the last time I saw a Pinterest page. Um, I've always been a pretty head down kind of designer. I don't, I mean, obviously I see what's going on in fabric, um, because I go to market every six months and, you know, I have friends and colleagues that are in the industry, but in turn, when I'm going to develop a collection or, um, I would be much more likely to look at, you know, a book of Matisse paintings or the runway or, um, I don't look at other fabric to get inspired about how to make fabric. If that Mm -hmm. makes any sense, you know, um, and that has served me pretty well to the point where I was a little, it was kind of tenuous, to become a buyer for a shop because that meant I was going to be looking at everything, right. <laughs> you know, I was always worried that I would be 
you know, more influence. I mean, I do have a head buyer for my shop that I, I certainly can c- contribute my, I was much more heavy handed about what was going to be in the shop when we first made all the original selections, you know, but, um, you know, it's, it's been good. Like I, I, um, I don't know. I think, I guess that's really, I feel pretty lucky that we are all, we are all influenced to a degree, but I don't ever feel any sort of, um, overwhelming pull to be one thing or another based on what I see, you know, and I just don't tend to look at a lot again, back to the schedule. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, seven children and 42 mm-hmm. jobs. Mm-hmm. You, I really like the, that you took time to mention how online education platforms, uh, for you, create a bug for me, creative live and Britain Co. Mm-hmm. Um, have played a part in your own role as both a mother and an entrepreneur. I, I, I personally just, I didn't, wasn't ready to travel, you know, abroad to teach for long periods of time, but being able to reach an audience and to a lesser extent, you know, live videos through Facebook and other ways that I can teach and reach a community, but still be here when, you know, the teenagers get home and when my, when I need to, you know, be the Girl Scout leader for my daughter or whatever has has completely given me what works for me as a career person and a mother. Um, right. And I just feel really lucky to be, you know, even though there's so much more hustle because there's so much more talent visible, mm. I also don't, I felt extraordinarily lucky to not have to, you know, shop my wares door to door. No. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's sort of like the thing that serves you really well. You also find yourself competing against (laughs) just because, you know, keeping in mind that the, you know, that accessibility that everybody has, you know, I always like to joke that Instagram took away the graphic designer's job. (laughs) I remember telling my daughter, Juliana, like, those filters. I'm like, you don't understand sweetheart. When I was in school and in graphic design courses, like I would spend hours on Photoshop trying to emulate, you know, the Nashville filter. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. It's nice and soft. (laughs) That was, you know, that was 30 bucks an hour work (laughs) for four hours. And now you can tap, like, it's just, so those tools of accessibility are so great, (laughs) but I mean the same thing though. So, you know, knitwear designers are still getting paid now what they were paid in the 80s because you know and obviously it's not just the 80s but people aren't buying knitting books or magazines like they used to because there's so much content available online it's awesome that it's available online and I wouldn't have a career without it but (laughs) same with the quilt patterns dress patterns like all of it you know like it's it's the same and, and same for videos, right? There's YouTube as opposed to purchasing a subscription from Creative Bag, which is, I don't know, something ridiculously cheap now, maybe 4 or $5 a month mm-hmm. for quality. But, um, but yeah, I get on YouTube if I can't remember how to do something. We all do. <laughs> we all do. And that's why you know, we're, we all need to figure out how to pioneer this new way of absorbing and producing content, you know, yes, it, it, sure. it, this is how our, you know, social zeitgeist works now mm. and we just have to figure it out. Yeah, it's true. And I think that for me, figuring it out always comes back to remembering who I am and what it is specifically that I can contribute that others won't, you know, just that sort of, um, being conscious of your identity as a maker and designer, you know, I think is so important and pretty easy to lose a handle on if you let yourself. Um, yeah. Last, a couple weeks ago, I interviewed um, my friend, Mark Montano. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a designer and a TV personality. And he, you know, he gave me a great, we were talking about something that I was working on and I was having some frustrations and he, you know, he just said to me, he's like, keep your head down and do the work. Like, mm. like yeah. don't, don't get sidetracked by what everybody else is doing. And so it's one of those, great. and he said a bunch of other stuff that I needed to hear. And it was one of those like snap out of it, you know, moonstruck mm. moments. And that I think that we need, that people need to hear. And that's why I try to bring stuff up like that on this podcast is that like, we cannot, all compete against each other. It's like if, especially in the arts and crafts industry, if one of us does well, we all do well. Right. Because we're getting this excitement going. Yeah. Um, Anything that grows it, you know, and I think that that's, I think that the state of like this quilt world and patchwork and sewing world, 
right now is it's a bit of a struggle for some companies because there was such growth about, you know, just as I was entering the industry about 10 or 12 years ago, but particularly as far as like more and more designers contributing, um, to the design of fabric and patterns. I mean, the independent pattern market has just exploded and, um, which is exciting, but I think that from what I can tell, and this is just completely, you know, not official. This is just my observation. Lay it on me. (laughs) I don't think that our consumers base has grown by a lot in the past three or four years. Um, it's strong, but it hasn't necessarily grown and it certainly hasn't grown at the rate of product that we have at the same, you know, like we sort of have the same size consumer base, but we have 10 times the product offerings that we did, you know, and that it can't last like that. And it's available internationally. Yes. And cheaper. And so you'll start seeing, you know, companies falling off and brick and mortars closing. And we do see that, you know, that like people can kind of only, I don't want to say fake it because they're not authentic and doing a good job, but I mean, fake it in terms of we're not making any money. You know, people can only kind of hang in there and put up with that for so long, uh, continuing to put themselves out there at a loss. Um, and so that is to your point of if one of us does well, we all do because I mean, the goal for all of us is that we grow that consumer base. And like you said, like maybe I should stop bitching about the one hour skirt because of the one hour skirt. <laughs> I didn't and put it like, like that. You know, <laughs> I think trail about the one hour skirt and just got under <laughs> my skin a little bit. Okay. So like, <laughs> but you're the first one with the balls to come back and say, but <laughs> so thank you. Um, you know, we want the consumer base to grow. We all want that. So that's kind of like what I feel like I'm doing a little bit, or at least I hope I am at Craft South because we're in this sort of like super hip trendy part of Nashville and there's coffee shops and, you know, handmade denim and, you know, Reese Witherspoon store. And there's like all kinds of people that come to this district and they walk in and out of every single door on the street, not even thinking about what it is. And because we are a craft shop, people will walk in because it looks cool on the outside to walk in there and there's this expression of like, Oh, you know, like I have a great impersonation of it that I can't do on audio, but maybe someday we'll do it on video. But like, it's like kind of like this fear in their eyes, like, Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to do something. I need to get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Not that they don't do things, but you know, it's just sort of like, Oh, it's a sewing store. Oh my gosh, it's a knitting store, you know? But if that person is chatting with someone else and they say, Oh yeah, I saw this, like, like it's still like exposing the general public to handcrafts, I think is going to contribute to the growth of it in our little community, you know? And I think that customers that come in with intent and they're not sure, and the more classes that they take and they grow and they decide that they, you know, they might start as a knitter, but every time they walk in, they see a quilt that they love, they might also become a quilter, you know? And, um, insisting on my shop kind of having what I call the trinity of craft, you know, embroidery and sewing and yarn craft. Um, I was completely willing to expand and contract each of those sections of the shop based on how they were selling. I just knew that the only perspective I can be really good at and provide beautiful product for is my own, at least to begin with. Right. And then see what people buy. So I essentially very selfishly set up craft South to be my dream studio of every product that I would ever want to have at my fingertips to create from. And I love all of those crafts. And what I've been so overjoyed by is watching the sales come across the counter. And there's not one sale that comes across the counter at craft South that I don't view online to see the, and yes, I can do reports on different, like how much is fabric by the yard selling versus embroidery versus yarns. Um, I can run reports, but when I do, and even when I just sort of take an analysis of looking at daily sales, most customers are buying something from all three areas, which is very gratifying because that's also very surprising. I think so too. I thought I was definitely going to have like all the needle crafts might sort of share something or I definitely knew that there were lots of patchworkers that also did crochet or knitting that very many of our customers, 
I would say 65% of our customers will purchase something from each section of the shop in a single purchase, which is awesome. And That's really that, encouraging and speaks probably mostly to how aesthetically pleasing your shop must be because people well, buy pretty. It's kind of pretty. It is kind of pretty. <laughs> I, mean, pretty. <laughs> I mean, if it looks anything like anything that you've done ever, I think it's pretty. Uh, and thanks. I mean that in the best possible way. Um, I wanted to end with a quote that I read. I don't think it's your quote, but it's the it's the best advice that you said that you were given. And I read it in a styleblueprint.com interview from 2011. Mm. It said, there is no perfection, only the perfect struggle. Mm. Mm-hmm. From Father Dimitri. <laughs> from He's Father the priest that raised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has that stuck with you? Is still uh, this yeah. five years later or six years later? Yes. Yes. From the time I was, I think, 25 or 26 when he gave me the advice, you know. And um, again, back to the beginning of our conversation, it's giving myself a break, right? Yeah. You know, giving yourself a break. Just continue to do your best and knowing that it's not always going to be perfect and close to perfect sometimes is more interesting anyway. Well, Anna Maria, this has been such a delight to talk to you. Finally, finally, yeah. getting to meet you has been I so great. So. Thank you so much for being on Craftish. Thank you, Vicki. For more information on Anna Maria, to see some of her work, and for the chance to win a premium collection of her new quilt patterns, coordinating applique templates, and a mixed stack of loads of Anna Maria Horner fabric, please just go to her show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. To enter, we just want you to weigh in by posting a comment on your thoughts about the conversation between quick and easy projects and more in-depth, intricate crafts. Which are better for you? Is there room for both? We want to hear about it. All commenters will be entered to win, and comments need to be posted by 10 p.m. Central Time on March 29th. Thanks again to our sponsor, Production 4. Don't forget to take a moment to check out our Kickstarter campaign for The Knit Show, and you can get a direct link to that campaign on my Facebook page or at vickihowell.com. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. We're off next week, but we'll be back on April 6th with a new episode with craft activist Betsy Greer. Until then, breathe in, craft out.